read from Acts chapter 4. Last time we were in Acts, we saw that there was a threat on the mission of the church. Remember the mission of the church? Acts 1.8 testified to the truth about Jesus everywhere. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Last week we saw that they have the church. Uh, last time we saw that the church faced uh, an obstruction, a hindrance in the form of external opposition. Tonight it's internal sin. So let's read this together. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them, for, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Amen. This is God's word. Well, it wasn't so long ago that the ice bucket challenge was an internet craze. Who doused themselves in freezing cold water? Anyone? A few? Oh, you're all a bit embarrassed. Videos of people having freezing cold water dumped on their heads were all over Facebook, some even making the news. Everyone was doing it, even A-listers, even former presidents of the United States. So many people were doing it. Why was that? Well, it was to raise awareness and to raise money for a charity that was researching ALS, uh, which uh, in the UK we call it motor neuron disease. And this is how it worked. If you were nominated... You did the challenge, you nominated two or three others, 
and then you donated something like five pounds to the designated charity. That's how it worked. And a huge amount of money was raised for a good cause. Uh, but or- organizations like the, the Charities Aid Foundation discovered that the number of people dousing themselves in ice cold water did not quite tally with the amount of money that was given. As it turns out, the majority of people soaking themselves did not donate a penny. Amazingly, statistics show that one in every six people in the UK participated. That's huge. One in every six, but only 10% gave. Wow. What is that all about? I mean, what is it that makes people want to publicly show a video of themselves getting soaked, yet privately hide their money being kept? What is it that makes people associate with the honourable cause of this ice bucket challenge, yet negotiate themselves out of actually supporting the cause? Well, it's the desire to look good without the personal cost. It's hypocrisy, in plain English. It's giving the impression of doing one thing when in fact you're doing another. And it's exactly what we find Ananias and Sapphira doing in our text today. They want a reputation for godliness and generosity more than they want to be godly and generous. And that is a severe problem for the people of God. Before we get to their circumstances and their situation in chapter 5... And how ugly their hypocrisy is and how it threatens the mission of the church, we need to look at the beautiful generosity of genuine believers. I've got two points tonight if you're taking notes. Uh, 4, 32 to 36, we're looking at genuine community, generous believers who propel the mission. And then in 5, 1 to 11, the second point, a deceptive couple, hypocritical believers who threaten the mission. So number one, a genuine community, generous believers propel the mission. Verses 32 to 36 provide us with another one of those aspirational pictures of a true gospel community. We've already had a couple of them in act so far. And verse 32 and following shows us what happens when the gospel really changes our hearts. And the first thing we see in verse 32 is that when the gospel changes our hearts, it creates a common unity. Uh, We love the same things. We love God with all we've got. We join together in expressing it. We join together to encourage one another to do it. We love the same things. And we think the same way. We, though we are many and diverse, are single-mindedly set on walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Set on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and set on testifying to the truth about Jesus everywhere. That's what we are committed to. The gospel does, in a sense, despite our diversity, create some uniformity. That's not to say that we become clones, but in the common things that we believe and do and say, there is a common unity, a likeness, a togetherness. And that's a beautiful thing, a thing to pursue, a thing to preserve and fight for. Well, how do we do that? Well, of course, we come and hear sermons. We hear the word of God preached. We come to know and cherish this truth. 
and seek hard to apply it in our lives, not just on our own, though we should do that, but together with other believers. We must do that. And of course, we should seek to fend off lies that prevent us or affect negatively this pursuit of truth. Lies, deceit, the wiles of the evil one work their way into church life in lots of different ways. Even in relation to the things that we believe and to doctrine. But we are to be those who guard the truth as a church together and refute error as we stand on the word of God and its authority. When we see the gospel changes our hearts, it not only creates this common unity, but it also creates a common concern. I wonder if you've experienced that for yourself. A growing concern for others, less selfish, more concerned about others. We see this concern, this care, demonstrated in two ways in verses 32 to 34. And first of all, we see in a sense where the, the believers in the church, their, their, their grip on things, on stuff, material things, seems to be loosened. Verse 32b says that in the early church, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, although they technically and legally owned their stuff, they had created a community so loving that they thought of their possessions, their goods, etc., as being available to anyone who had need of them. I think I've told this story before, but a friend of mine was very generous whenever I was uh, attending Bible college in Glasgow. Um, I was still staying in Dundee at the time due to my wife's work. But every, when we travelled through to Glasgow, I stayed with my friend for a couple of nights in the week. And knowing that the, the, the place that I was staying in, his house, none of the things in that place, they, they didn't belong to me at all. And so, rightly so, I didn't presume anything. I, I asked permission. Uh, do you mind if I use your computer to check my emails? It's not my computer, Liam. It's God's computer, was his response. I mean, that's a lovely thing to hear. It, kind of, it got a little bit ridiculous when it came to the fact that, do you mind if I put on a slice of toast? It's God's bread, Liam. It's not my bread, you know. But the sentiment was there. Uh, he, he was super kind uh, to, to help teach me and let me know that actually whatever I have need of in his house, I can use it, which was great. Uh, that's how it was for the church in Acts 4. That's what happens when the gospel really affects us and changes our hearts. Our grip on things, things that we used to treasure. You know, things that we used to kind of covet and keep away, even from our most beloved ones. Uh, We're willing to share these things. The grip is loosened. But not only that, when the gospel grips our heart, our our willingness to make sacrifices for others is heightened. It increases. Verse 34 shows us this. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. They gave the money to the church and saw the gifts distributed to those who had need. What a challenging thing that is. People sold land. People sold houses. Why? Because they saw a need among the people of God. They saw a need to resource the work of God. And that's a real challenge for us. Today, we seem to be so afflicted with the desire only to buy, not to sell, you know, to consume, not to give away. But look at what happens when people are really changed by the gospel, when they unite together to pursue and support a common goal. The church family is well cared for. No one had a need. The church leaders are resourced. 
And united, generous believers then propel the mission of God to take the gospel out. It cultivates a community of love. And Jesus said it's by our love that people will know that we are his disciples. And it resources the mission so that the leaders of the church are free to declare and continue preaching. Now there's no mistake in this link between the generosity of the church and the ministry of the apostles. That's why verse 33 is nestled neatly in here. It points out that not only did the apostles preach the gospel, they did it with great power and great grace. Actually, the Greek word in both of those cases is mega, mega power, mega grace. I love that. Now listen, there is nothing more inspiring for a church leader than to see the gospel changing hearts and changing lives, creating a united, generous church family who are single-mindedly devoted to the spread of the gospel and to caring deeply for one another. It is unbelievably encouraging. Can I ask you, has the gospel changed your heart in those ways? Is kindness and generosity a new feature of your life way more than it used to be? Do you find yourself being generous with your things? When news of a need hits your ears, are you thinking, can I do something about that? If so, that's a real encouragement that the gospel is starting to shape your heart. If not, then we should confess and we should pray for God's help that we would loosen our grip on the things of this world, things that we might treasure, things that will rust and be destroyed and truly pursue the treasure that will endure forever in heaven. We should pray that God would make us a bit like Barnabas. You see Barnabas' example in verses 36 to 37 He's held out a wonder, as a wonderful example of this kindness and generosity. Actually, his name's Joseph. I actually forgot that this week. I'm so used to remembering him as Barnabas. All the way through Acts, he's referred to as Barnabas. He's such an encouragement. He gets a nickname. We love nicknames, don't, don't we? Mostly. Um, Barney. Barney boy. Son of encouragement. So encouraging. His dad must be Mr. Encouragement. It's a wonderful thing to see. He features so much in Acts and always in a good way. He never ever lets the mission of the church or concern for the church family out of his sight. Even at the point of conflict later on. He's the one. Everyone's saying, you know the apostle Paul? You know, Saul's converted. And Paul is, he's saying, Jesus appeared to me. I'm coming to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And all the other folks are like, yeah, I know your game. I know what you used to do. Who's the one? that grabs hold of the Paul and brings him in and says, no, no, listen to this guy. He's one of us. It's Barney. Barnabas. It's wonderful. Oh, for more Barnabases. For people who spend themselves in caring for the church family, preparing the, propelling the mission forward with mega grace and mega power. Lord, give us that. Give us that. Well, generous believers encourage the mission, but number two, hypocritical believers threaten the mission, stall the mission. What we have is a picture of a genuine community at first, but then chapter 5 introduces us to this deceptive couple. It's a stark reminder for us, as John Stott says, that it was not all romance and righteousness in the early church. 
So this is point two, a deceptive couple. In verse one, we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. They seem like such a lovely couple. But by all, because by all appearances, they are just like Barnabas. Both Barnabas and this couple, they sold property. Both brought the proceeds of their sales. Both laid it at the apostles' feet. But the difference was that Ananias and Sapphira kept some of the money back for themselves. Question, was that the wrong thing to do? Well, in verse 4, Peter reveals that there's nothing inherently wrong with that after all. While the property wasn't on the market, he said, it belonged to you. There were no church rules that said, okay, everybody, you need to sell your homes. No No obligation like that. And even when the sale went through, Peter explains, the money belonged to you. You could do with it whatever you wanted to do. There were no church rules, no obligations that said, if you did go ahead and choose to sell a house or land and give the proceeds to the church, you you know, a certain percentage was required, 100%. There was no rule like that at all. They were free to do with whatever they wanted with it. So their sin is not actually in that they kept some back. It's that it's that they were deceptive with their gift and with the money that they kept back. So by all appearances, they look just like Barnabas. They look like real encouragers, but appearances can be deceiving. The clue in the passage lies in the word Luke uses for kept back. In the original language, it's, it's the word for misappropriate. It gives the idea of shaving something off a sum. The kind of thing that a fraudster would do, really. That's why Peter then concentrates not simply on their dishonesty, but on their lack of integrity. As John Stott says, bringing only a part while pretending to bring the whole. Pretending to be something you're not. This is called hypocrisy. It's the ice bucket challenge all over again, isn't it? They wanted to give the impression of doing one thing when in fact they were doing another. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the reputation for wholehearted discipleship and kindness, but without the inconvenience of it. Ananias wants the reputation, so he tries to buy it. I mean, we use our money to get all sorts of things. We, get, we use our money to buy the things that we want. Why not this? Maybe he thinks. But reputation... Especially in the church, it's not just another commodity to trade in. They say that everything is for sale at the right price, but not this. God will not tolerate this kind of deceit. For falsehood ruins fellowship. Ruins it. And that's why Jesus, who is the head of the church, uses... Peter to snuff out this hypocrisy or this lax view of sin before it spread, before it corrupted the church and derailed and hindered their mission. It's effectively something similar to what was happening with Achan in Joshua 7. As God's people were trying to enter the promised land, Achan went against God's law and was deceitful in doing so. And the severity of God's judgment was plain to see in Joshua 7. But that's the same kind of deception that we see even at the start of this new people of God, the church in its infancy. Now, this kind of deception is not that uncommon in the church today. Um, We know know our hearts. We prayed beforehand 
I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me in Psalm 51. It's true, isn't it? We know our sin. And it can be all too easy, though, to pretend to be something that we're not in order to maintain an appearance of godliness, for example. So we talk about holiness all the time, but we're constantly lusting after people who are looking at porn. Or we try and maintain the appearance of kindness. You know, we tut and shake our heads when we find out that someone's not being cared for in the church, but we'll never do anything about it ourselves. Or we try and maintain the appearance of prayerfulness. You know, we turn up at the prayer meetings and pray in public, but we never read our Bibles or pray in private. It's hypocrisy. I wonder what it is for you. Where else do you find yourself to be guilty of keeping up false appearances? Worried that if the truth came out, it might affect your reputation. That might be through your online presence. We try and keep up appearances there. Facebook and Instagram, all these sorts of things can be used to make us look good. But even in simple conversation after church or in our small groups. It's a terrible thing to do what we do. Not to make Jesus look good, but to try and maintain an appearance of making ourselves look good. It's it's absolutely corrupt. it's no small thing to rob Jesus of his glory or to think of sin as a small matter to God did Jesus consider sin a small matter when he was sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane or when he was paying the price for our sin on the cross no sin is no small matter it's a serious thing and it must be dealt with And in Acts 5, the severity of God's judgment shows just how poisonous and sinful sin actually is and how seriously God takes it. Because although these guys are keeping up appearances, the appearances are deceiving, but it's only revealed when God sees through and acts on the deception. There aren't that many passages that are as stark as this one, let's face it. When we look at verse 5, we see Peter addressing Ananias. It doesn't really say how Peter came to find out about Ananias' deceit, but he confronts him really in tones similar to the Old Testament prophets who pronounced divine judgment. Very similar, in fact, to Joshua, as he calls the clans forward and the people forward, then the individual forward. He's pronouncing divine judgment with divine knowledge, it seems. And as he questions him, in an instant, Ananias drops down dead. You know, no one shot him. No one stabbed him in the back. It was just as, as freely as God had given him breath that day, he took it away. Nor is there really any explanation for why Ananias didn't even say a word. Or why God didn't give him the chance to actually say a word. No, that simply the severity of God's action is presented as fact. And it underlines for us how seriously God takes sin. It's not something to be trifled with. And it underlines that sin is an offense against him. After all, verse 3 says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit, who is God. Verse 4 repeats the charge, you have lied to God. There are two verses right next to each other. Inform our understanding of the deity of the the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Okay, 
we excited? But what Ananias had offered was a counterfeit work of the Spirit. By bringing a shaven gift, he, ha- he had made a mockery of God, and God will not be mocked. God is not duped by the prideful lies of people trying to show off and gain glory for themselves, trying to be something that they're not and sinning in the process. And especially so when the purity of the church and her mission could be detrimentally affected by such hypocrisy, God will exercise his discipline. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. This is to believers. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. So what's going on in this text? It seems like God is disciplining Ananias and Sapphira. Somehow it seems to be better to take them to glory, for it seems like they are part of the believers, than to leave them there to corrupt. And he uses this instance. Because sin spreads, remember. Sin spreads. Remember Jesus' teaching? Like yeast, what does it do? Works its way through the whole batch. And Jesus said, we're the ones who should, t- who should deal with sin severely. So severely, he says, it would be better for you to take a millstone and tie it around your neck and jump into the sea than for you to cause anyone else to sin. <sighs> Tell you what. That is some of the strongest language I have ever heard concerning sin and wrongdoing. That's why God exercises judgment and discipline in this way. It's a reflection of his holiness and the seriousness with with which he takes sin. And just to underline his holiness and the severity of judgment on sin, the whole thing happens again with Sapphira. He asks her the same question. Here's your out, Sapphira. Tell the truth. You wonder if when she appeared before Peter, is this how much you got for it? Someone was behind her saying, tell the truth. But no. She lies. The charge against her is that she is testing the Spirit of God. Maybe test, I don't know in what way, testing to see how willing the Spirit is to let some sins pass by. I don't know. It seems likely that it's that. But what happened? She fell under the same judgment as her husband. And irony of ironies, she fell exactly where they had laid the gift. Verse 10, at the apostles' feet. The young men, poor young men. They had just buried her husband. It had taken them about three hours to do it, it seems. And they come back and they find her dead. And they have to carry her out and bury her too. That was the job of the apprentices back then, I'm sure. Two funerals in one day, and by the end of it, the church knew, fine and well, God hates sin. God hates hypocrisy. And God so cares about the purity of of his church that he will remove any threat to its mission and communicate to the church that they must be holy as he is holy. Now let me reassure you of one thing and warn you of another before we close. 
the reassuring thing is that not every hypocrite in that church or in our church can expect to be struck down in the same way it would be a very empty church and I I dare say I would not have even got through my introduction and though we are all subject to God's discipline and though God could do this again if he wished it does seem to be something of an exceptional event that provides a very clear message concerning what God will do with those whose lives are full of pretense and who threaten that great and glorious endeavor of taking the gospel to the nations. It's a serious thing. And sometimes people forget just who is in charge of the church. It's Jesus. He died to cleanse it, to cleanse her and make her pure. He's never been impressed by outward expressions of piety. And here's the warning for us. Jesus is just as serious about preserving holiness and awe in his people so that the ends of the earth may be reached. That's why we must pray for God's help. In the moment of temptation, it's not just something that affects you. It affects the rest of us in the church family. Our weakness in sin, moments of temptation, or worse still, our conscious, willful, deliberate plunging into sin hinders the mission of God through His church. It's that serious. We tend not to think like that in those moments of temptation, of how it will affect our brothers and sisters, of how it will impede the mission. But our holiness is key to it. And it's underlined in this text. So we must pray for God's help with integrity, righteousness and truthfulness. That's why we can't excuse or overlook sin in the church. Church discipline is necessary. It's a loving thing. It's not a a judgmental thing. It's a pure thing. It's a God-ordained thing. It's a restorative thing. Come back. Don't do this. Repent. Be forgiven that's what we need to do what are the sins that are entangling you the book of Hebrews encourages us to throw these things off the sin that so easily entangles it hinders us from running the race what is it what do we need to put to death and how can we invite other people to help us to be accountable to us and pray that these things would be these would be the things that would be slaughtered Maybe we need a healthy fear of the Lord again. That's what we find in this text. Verses 5 and 11 that shows that all was widespread as a result. Great fear seized all. Verse 5. Great fear seized the church and all who heard. Now, do you know the word that it's used for great in Greek? Mega. Mega fear. Now, it's not like they were cowering and didn't want to come before God. It was who, it, They knew exactly who they were coming before. The holy God, who has graciously made a way for their sin to be dealt with and for them to come into his presence through faith in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and to live as he asks them to live and invites us to live in a manner keeping with the gospel we profess to believe mega fear, mega reverence of God's mega 
holiness. And we get the details twice to make sure we get how serious it is. We may be shocked to see that even in the light of this, Acts 5.14 goes on to say, more and more people believed in the Lord. I think there is a link between this passage and what happens next. We'll look at that next week. So what should we do? Maybe like me, you're coming to an awareness of your lack of concern for your sin. You've been dealing with your sins in such a trifling way. But God is holy and he calls us to be holy like he is so that we might better love one another, better reflect his glory to the world, better take the gospel to the world. What should we do? How should we respond? We are, as James calls us, adulterous people whose friendship with the world is hatred towards God's. He says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? You get the sense of fear. (laughs) But he gives us more grace. This is the day of his favor. This is the day of his kindness towards us that is why the scripture says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble so submit yourselves then to God resist the devil and he will flee from you come near to God and he will come near to you wash your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded grieve, mourn Wail, change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humbly repent under his welcoming grace. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, every day that you put off believing in him and trusting in the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, it's a dangerous day. We do not know when our last day will be. And I'm, am I trying to scare you? In a way, yes. Because you should be scared. This God is terrifying. If we have to face him without the blood of Jesus Christ covering us, without him giving us a ticket of entry into the very presence of God, that day will be a terrible day. A day when it would be our preference to have an avalanche of jagged rocks following us than come face to face with his holiness. Your sin, your wrongdoing is serious. Your sin is an an offense against God. Maybe you didn't realize that tonight. I'd love to chat with you about that and show you from the Bible, the word of God, the truth of God, that that is so. But he encourages you to do what the text in here says humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up confess your sin turn away from it turn to God in faith trusting in the forgiveness that he extends to us even though we don't deserve it and even tonight right now you can find full and free forgiveness and the promise of joy in his presence forever and ever will you believe in him
Brothers and sisters, let us not hinder the mission by being flippant with our sin. But let's pray for each other that God would make us like Barney and make us holy. Let's pray together.